0: the the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.
1: Hey, Culture Gabfest listeners! A quick note for those of you who are planning to come to the live show uh, on Wednesday in New York: uh, the show has been rescheduled due to an impending snowstorm. It will now be at the same time and place as before, 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. Only now it will be on Friday, March 9th. Uh, we're really sorry about the inconvenience, but we wanted to make sure everyone would have the opportunity to come to see the show and that everyone would be able to get there safely. Ticket holders should receive an email soon about refunds should you need one. Uh, But once again, the show is now scheduled for Friday, March 9th at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn. Hope to see you there. The following
0: podcast contains explicit language.
1: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Dana the Octophile Edition. It's Wednesday, March 7th, 2018. Uh, On today's show, the Oscars at the end of the day, they ended up honoring Me Too and Shape of Water. We'll try to pick through what it all means, if anything. And then Game Night is the new comedy featuring Jason Bateman and Amy Adams. And finally, Against the Octopus with Slate's own Dan Engber. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
2: Hi, Steve.
1: And of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, Stephen.
1: All right, well, digging right in, um, the 90th Academy Awards ceremony was this past Sunday. It was hosted by Jimmy Kimmel, and it was a capstone to what was widely considered a very competitive year for Best Picture and really across all categories. It's also capstone to a year that featured the revelations about Harvey Weinstein, Uh, Obviously, as a predatory monster that gave uh, rise to the Me Too movement, Uh, it seemed like a year to watch, a milestone year, a lot of drama, uh, both backstage uh, and in front of the camera, and yet fewer people than ever did. That's a subject we'll get to as well. But first, Dana Stevens' Shape of Water, a love letter to cinema, a middle-of-the-road cop out. Uh, how'd you feel about that, taking home the big prize?
2: I don't know. You know, I was going to say to you guys as we were watching that. I feel like this is the year that I learned to stop worrying and love the Oscars and just enjoy <laughs> the telecast. And that may partly be because I'm on semi-book leave and didn't have to stay up all night writing on the Oscars, which is always a stressful thing to do with so many people writing on it. But uh, I kind of thoroughly enjoyed the, the boring endlessness of the telecast this year. And none of the awards made me extremely mad. I just couldn't I couldn't get into any of the narratives about what terrible things it means that such middle-of-the-road, boring things were getting awards. I actually was sort of happy to see The Shape of Water get recognized. I mean, we've done it on this show, so we all know it's none of our favorite movie of the year. But to characterize it, as I think actually Aisha Harris did in her in her roundup of the Oscars, as the safe, boring choice seems a little unfair to the movie to me. I mean, it is a movie with no stars, mid-budget, right? The thing we're always saying that is being driven out of the industry, that we want to come back. And uh, and what it's about, obviously, the subject matter is unusual. The director is, first of all, a Mexican immigrant, as is the first thing he pointed out in his speech. So in that sense, he's not you know some sort of hegemonic figure. And is also just Guillermo del Toro. I mean, he's a wonderful filmmaker. He's a lovable guy. Whether or not you think this is his best movie, he is a force for good in the cinematic world. So I was not Unhappy mm-hmm. to see his movie get the and recognition And also
3: did. historic for the first ever sci-fi movie to win Best
2: Picture. Right. Or genre movie in a way. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that it's maybe more of a horror or fantasy or something like that. But yeah, that kind of movie is is generally not recognized as well. So it was kind of an unusual choice. Not the edgiest thing on the slate, but to me, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm beating this drum a lot about the Oscars, but when you kind of kick back and stop expecting your taste to be ratified, it's, it's just so much more enjoyable.
3: Well, and as I think we've all noted on this show this year, it was such a great year for movies. There were so many great movies recognized with the nominations that even if your favorite didn't win, the things that did win were generally fairly worthy. I was glad that uh, Three Billboards didn't win any movie-wide awards for writing or direction or best picture so that nobody awarded the aesthetics of the entire movie, which are the things that I've had problems with. Um, But if you had told me 10 years ago that there was going to be an Oscars where the two actress winners were Frances McDormand and Allison Janney, I would have fallen down in delight. Those are two of my favorite working actresses who always brings such intelligence and vim and brio to the performances that they make. And, you know, if neither of the movies that they were in were my favorite movies ever, and if I was sad that Laurie Metcalf didn't get recognized for her extraordinary work or that uh, Leslie Manville didn't get recognized for her extraordinary work, it's, like, really hard to feel uh, that those Academy idiots are doing it again when they Mm -hmm. reward Frances McDormand and Allison Janney. Um, And similarly... I think it's a testament to how far the Academy as a voting body has moved that Shape of Water is the safe choice. I mean, I think that's sort of what Aisha was saying. I, I think she was acknowledging that the movement, you know, it's, it's not a dim bit of dopey awards bait, that movie, even if it wasn't your favorite. And of course, I'm, I was out on the is it
2: H- Hastings? Hustings? Hustings? How do you say that word? H- I, w- I would think Hustings. it was Hustings, but I'm not quite sure what Hustings are. Well,
3: I whatever are they, they are. Are they related to bunting? Whatever they are, I was out on them <laughs> touting that Get Out is a is an instant classic, extraordinary feat mm-hmm. of filmmaking and that it truly was the best picture of 2017 and should have been rewarded as such. And I do still believe that but like in the history of cinema how many great classic movies have not won Best Picture? So many like and it was wonderful I mean it was my favorite moment of the night to see Jordan Peele win
2: Right and that was mm-hmm. a great award for that movie to get right I mean I feel like you're right in saying that Three Billboards was something you might not mind getting acting awards but you don't want to see it get a, a writing or directing award given that Get Out was going to only get one award I mean it's the writing it's the vision and the kind of originality of that vision Yeah, yeah that, that kind of drives that movie
3: and I think I think Jordan Peele was the first black writer to ever win Best Original Screenplay, which is also, I mean, just how backwards these awards are is so astonishing. And uh, that was really exciting to see.
2: What about you, Steve? Right. Did, you, did you shake your fist at the screen at all?
1: No, I don't care about it enough to do that. But I, I will say um, a couple things. One is that I've got a back pocket theory about a couple of related issues. The first is that the Academy Awards are becoming like movies themselves have become over the past... 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is, which is an enormous amount of concern in the run-up and anticipation, uh, a a boring, overlong, frenetic, ill-focused experience of the thing itself, and then everyone forgets it immediately um, almost uh, by the following weekend. I mean, you know, it's amazing how much symbolic investment there is in these awards, especially Best Picture, and how irrelevant they are in retrospect, as Julia points out, I mean, you go back and look over the list of, of winners versus what the most socially important or aesthetically interesting or daring or whatever memorable movie from that year is, and, and the, the two very rarely line up or aren't even really close. And then the other thing I'd point out is that is that, you know, in 2014, you had 43 plus, close to 44 million people watching the Oscars. In 2018, you had 26 and a half million. I mean... The media pays a lot of attention to it and um, I think probably a increasingly older and older demographic still pays a lot of attention to it. I don't think the collective nostalgia for this now 90-year-old institution is transferring all that readily to the social media generation, to the millennials. I suspect that it's quite an older demographic now that still cares about this enormously. So I was relatively indifferent. I mean, I was rooting against way more than I was rooting for Uh, and essentially rooting against three billboards. I thought I thought all of the best picture uh nominees were worthy films, and you could come up with a reverse engineered excuse for any one of them winning, except for that film. I was very glad when it didn't win. The only one that made me angry at all was Daniel Day Lewis losing to Gary Oldman. You know, the joke is it's not it's not best acting; it's most acting, which is tends to be the error that gets made. A lot of subtle performances, I thought... I mean, people don't understand... (laughs) acting as an art form if i have to climb one hobby horse this year vis-a-vis the oscars it would probably be that uh, i i like i loved mcdormand's speech which we'll get to in a second uh, i liked it more than her performance uh, I, I did not go to see the churchill movie it was one of the ones that i skipped the myth of churchill is 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 just o- overextended and at this point completely false but um but you know acting is a very film acting is a very subtle Art the lenses in your face, your face on the screen is magnified. You are you are you are doing so many subtle things to make a performance work. Perfect example is the totally overlooked performances of Ray Romano and uh, and Holly Hunter in The Big Sick. Um, Lori Metcalf, I loved Alison Janney in I Tanya. She doesn't not deserve the award, but but she's always a performance like that is always going to beat out the performance that Laurie Metcalf had in uh, Lady Bird. So much of the movie is hung on you both loving and resenting that woman exactly as Shir Sharonan does, exactly as Lady Bird does. That's a very, very difficult thing to pull off. I mean, if, you know, it, it, it's harder in some sense than what Alice and Janie did. But, uh, so to me, to sum up, I mean, my own only real... Um, You know, source of resentment at all was Daniel Day-Lewis, who did incredible work. And as you pointed out, um, Dana, on Twitter, a probably valedictory performance and losing out to kind of a scenery-chewing one seems to me just old-style Academy dunderheadedness. But um, why don't—should we turn to um, Me Too? I mean, would you agree with me that this year— for how many different things were going on both in Hollywood and around Hollywood, the strangely anticlimactic feeling um, until you got to Francis McDormand.
3: The boil had sort of been lanced, I think, at the Golden Globes. Like the Golden Globes was the first big gala occasion on which Hollywood had to stand up and wear a sequins and t- spin around while also recognizing that it's undergoing this huge reckoning. And so that whole night was electric and people were watching to figure out how it would go and what would happen. And there was this coordinated effort by actresses to wear black and uh, bring activists on the red carpet. And um, there was a tautness to that night. And then that night kind of snipped the cord and it felt at the Oscars that Uh, everybody's sort of gotten used to the new Hollywood, where a bunch of people are working together to hopefully affect change, and maybe it's going to happen, and maybe it's not, and everybody's sort of figured out how to talk about it and uh to agree that change is good, but is it really? You know, like it's sort of it's moved on to the marketing and platitudes stage of the transformation. I'm not meaning to undercut the significance of what might be achieved, but in terms of how it is discussed and presented, there just wasn't as much. Tension or urgency to it. Uh, I also thought that the broad approach of the Oscars this year, the 90th Academy Awards, was very heavy on reminding you that the movies were good and that they weren't all just like some shell game to peddle the bodies of women run by horrible, craven, abusive men. (laughs) Like... There were so many montages, like the montage came back. They were like, let's watch the movies. Let's watch women in the movies being badasses. Let's watch the representation montage of people of color and all kinds of interesting figures. Let's have a military in the like and and. Frankly, the montages, I think, were pretty well made. me too. I, I always
2: love a Oscar montage.
3: I definitely, like wept. The one that was just like, movies have given us such amazing moments. The one that was the the kind of the main. It's the ninetieth anniversary of the Oscars montage. I totally was like crying with nostalgia <laughs> and emotion at the end. And then the set, which was this, like towering, I think, willa Paskin. Uh, called it a geode, a vaginal geode of a set within these like gigantic panels that seem to have alternately like stained glass and crystal projected on them. There was a lot of, uh, capital M majesty in the night. I think the night was trying to reclaim the idea that movies have given us something in return for all of this pain, horror and abuse. Um, not sure that the message was entirely put over, but but that's what seemed to be going on, I think, in the staging of the night. And then, you know, one of the most moving moments of the night, I think, was seeing uh, Ashley Judd Annabella Shiora and Sama Hayek stand up and present uh, sort of an interview video with people about the importance of different voices telling stories in Hollywood. Um, And just seeing these three women who had all suffered at the hands of the Self proclaimed an actual king of the Oscars for decades, just the power of the three of them standing there and the and the clear um emotion, particularly for Shiora was was striking, but that was really the most uh, close to the bone I felt like the night. Went in terms of the Weinstein stuff.
2: Yeah, Kimmel's shtick was surprisingly light on the uh, on references to Times Up or Me Too or politics or or anything at all. I mean, I felt like his hosting was was very bland, which was fine because it wasn't a huge part of the evening. But but yeah, there was surprisingly little um, really cutting to the bone jokes about that. I
3: mean, he explicitly mentioned it several times in the monologue. The monologue was, I actually thought I am not sure I agree with that. I feel like the mon th- there was not a lot of. Acid in those jokes because he's Jimmy Kimmel. But I guess that's what I mean by Hollywood has learned how to platitudize this whole thing. Like the tension around sexual harassment in Hollywood was just the text and not the subtext of Jimmy Kimmel's monologue. And in fact, a comedian as kind of straightforward as Jimmy Kimmel could be the one who said that. You didn't need to be a wild truth teller uh, or an acidic wit to actually poke the third rail of Harvey Weinstein. It's just become like the text of Hollywood. is like, yep, women were screwed. Now we hope they're doing better. I'm just Jimmy Kimmel. I can just say that. That's like the main joke, not the electric jab, um, which is, I suppose, progress. And I think Willa noted in her piece that actually the politics was in the presenter patter throughout throughout the night. So like this, the kind of bromides that get trotted out when the man and woman stand next to each other at the microphone was full of like, we're dreamers and this and that. It wasn't the outre thing that someone was saying, you know, surprisingly, when they were just supposed to get their award. It was like, okay, this is how Hollywood talks about itself now. We're in the middle of change. Progress is happening. Stupid old men were stupid. Ha, ha, ha. Like, it was all just kind of canned, you know. But even that's progress.
1: Before we wrap, let's definitely turn to the many people's highlight of the night was Frances McDormand's acceptance speech for Best Actress, why don't we listen to a clip?
2: If I may be so honored to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors.
0: Meryl, if you do it, everybody
2: else will. Come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers.
1: Dana, a genuinely inspiring moment. Huh?
2: Yeah, and well, worth waiting the whole evening for. I mean, she, she, it was a real call to action, and uh, the moment where she put the statue down, you know, and sort of patted it on the head, and then summoned the audience was one reason that it was so great. Is that it was just so out of character for the famous kind of Frances McDormand deadpan mug at every awards show. She's always sort of the makeup makeupless, not scowling exactly, but you know, extremely uh, blank face in the audience, and that's kind of her thing, right? That she is not a glamour puss and she's not particularly happy to be there. And just to see her get really electric with joy and nervousness and laughter was fantastic, especially because it was less in a way about getting the award. You know, she already has an Oscar. It was more it was more about this moment of getting to really preach to the room.
1: All right. Here, here. All right. Well, uh, come to Facebook. Tell us what you thought of the Oscars about Francis McDormand and uh, Shape of Water winning. And uh, ride your hobby horse at Facebook.com slash CultureFest, as always. All right, moving on. Before we go any further, Julia, I'm sure we have uh, business. What uh, What's on the uh, docket today?
3: Not too much business today, but I did want to remind our listeners about the glorious show Whistle Stop, the wonderful creation of the political gabfest, John Dickerson. Some of America know him as uh, CBS This Morning's John Dickerson. Not us. For us, he'll always be the political gab fest, John Dickerson. Whistle Stop is a narrative podcast that's a dose of presidential history with a dash of how that history relates to current events. A lot of people have noted that Andrew Jackson and Trump have a lot in common, but it takes John Dickerson to dig into that history and tell you what to really think about that parallel. Again, that's Whistle Stop. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. In our Slate Plus segment this week, available to Slate Plus members, available to you if you become a Slate Plus member, we're inspired by our own parenting advice column, Nicole Cliff's recent Twitter thread about small talents to share our own small talents. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it is a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Slate Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today.
1: All right, back to it. Game Night is about Max and Annie, a pair of likable enough yuppies who love to compete, but only really if they win. They hate to lose at games. They take them super seriously. Their weekly game night with a couple friends is sacrosanct ritual. But it gets blown to all holy hell when Max's brother, his good-looking, rich, effortlessly better-than-him brother, shows up and suggests a much more true-to-life, thrilling game night. He proposes a staged mystery treasure hunt that then turns all too real. Let's listen to a clip.
0: In the next hour, someone in this room is going to be taken. And it's going to be up to you to find them before they are murdered.
2: Oh, it's a murder mystery party.
1: Not just any murder mystery. I found this company. They do it super real. They use legit actors. You're not gonna know what's real and what's fake. Fun! But that's not all. Because whoever finds the victim wins the grand prize. The keys to the stingray. What? Wow.
0: Just the keys? <laughs> no, Ryan, the whole car. <laughs> oh, yes! Oh, man. You're so lucky I brought you to this game night, not one Max Annie's Hey! No, I just mean because this is better.
1: Oh. (laughs) All right. Well, it's a good sign, Julia. We're laughing during the clip. Did you laugh throughout the uh, whole movie?
3: I have nothing to say about this movie other than that (laughs) it's my favorite movie I've seen in like a hundred years and I loved it (laughs) and I laughed so hard. (laughs) I mean, it's not... It just gave me so much joy. (laughs) And I don't even want to say that because it's like you don't really want to overhype it. It's not it's not an advance of the form. It's not like, I, I, I sort of think you should stop listening to us talk about whether it's good. I don't know, Dan and Steve, if you guys thought it was good. Like, I feel that it's, Delight would be cushioned if you went in expecting the funniest movie of all time. But I just mm-hmm. went and I laughed so hard for a perfect hour and 40 minutes and then it was over and I haven't thought about it since. And when you told us we had to talk about Max and Annie, I was like, what are you talking about? What is our third topic? Wait, what? <laughs> because I didn't even register their names. Uh, but it's just like an a extremely competent Hollywood comedy in a way that reminds you that we don't get those anymore, really.
0: And uh,
3: I enjoyed it heartily.
2: I don't totally agree that we never get a competent Hollywood comedy. I mean, it just it seems like we've talked about, I don't know, what's the Seth Rogen living next door to the frat people, those movies. I mean, this seems like on the order of those movies, sort of. It's like a Freaks and Geeks alumni, well-made Sort of very flimsy comedy that kind of disappears the minute you watch it, but is enjoyable at the time. And I mentioned Freaks and Geeks also because the directors, the co-directors of this movie are Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. The second of those two, John Francis Daly, being Sam on Freaks and Geeks, the little brother who was one of the highlights of the show and who has now moved into the production end of movies.
3: Well, also, here's one theory about comedy. And yes, you you have called me out on my hyperbole accurately, but... One question about the state of comedy in Hollywood right now is the the truism and I don't know if it's really a truth that drama is global but comedy is local like it's the it's the same rhetoric that that they used to use as the excuse for not making movies with black people like well will they buy it in China will it travel to France like will they think it's funny da da da, da. we have it has to be intergalactic stakes and and ocean going robots otherwise the you know, two-thirds of our monetization scheme will fall apart. So comedies, which used to be big, are now smaller. Um, and maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But this is also a movie about, like, white people in their late 30s who have just settled down into a narrower track in life who enjoy game night uh, that seems to be made by people whose comedic taste is slightly nerdy so like yeah i liked this movie but maybe i like this movie because this movie was made for me
1: right mm. let me split the difference here a little bit i i think on julie to to, to to julia's initial point that this movie is a rarity i mean the numbers actually bear that out the mid-budget you know uh comedy driven by stars uh, based on original material is actually disappearing there are far fewer of them it doesn't mean there are none there are some but they are way less prevalent than they used to be um and, in that sense, I totally cherish this movie i mean it's it's very funny, it's very joke driven The jokes don't cut very deep. The jokes often feel as though they were added at the last minute in the margins by a joke guy who was hired to do an onset rewrite they're not woven deeply into these characters because it's not a deeply thought-out thing. But they're funny, right? So it's like the joke guy came in and did his job. I mean, it, he punched he punched up the script. I have no idea if this is what actually happened, but I don't especially care. It feels like it does, and that's what's important. It did, in other words, this is not a character, a deeply character-driven comedy where the situation evolves. And Anyway, it's, it's just funny. It's punched-up funny, you know, kind of sitcom-style, you know, sitcom quality, joke level funny. Um, however, it does it does at least take... And also, I thought the opening sequence that introduces you to the setup of the movie is so tight and so well done. It set the bar a little too high for the rest of the movie that then wants to follow through in a kind of plotted or over plotted way on its premise. I mean, it actually wants to immerse you in this crazy situation that unfolds and gets crazier and crazier and not just play out in a boring way, it's original pre- and predictable way, it's original premise. And then it starts to, you know, leak like a, you know, ancient bucket or something. I mean, it just, it, it if you set the bar exactly right, which is probably saving this one for an airplane, you're going to love it.
2: Yeah, this is kind of an airplane movie. Yeah, I mean it, it really does lose steam. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the mean person who punctures a little bit the game night love, although it is thoroughly enjoyable and I do like that it doesn't ask a lot of you and it just sort of lets you sit back and be goofy for an hour and forty minutes. Classic Dana
3: hating games. <laughs>
2: But and I actually even love the the hyper competitive couple premises. I agree, Steve, that 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 opening pre credit segment where you see how the Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams characters get together at a at a pub trivia quiz where they're both insanely competitive is is really fun. And the movie never quite lives up to that tightness. This movie is really dependent on plot twists, right, and on the story eventually all making sense because there's this whole idea that Kyle Chandler playing the brother has set them up with this gaming company and that you're not going to know what's real and what's not real. And then, of course, subsequently, we as the audience don't know what's real and what's not real. And there's multiple fake outs. So to know by the end what's real and what's not and who planned what to be real and what not – Seems really important in the satisfaction of the resolution. And I mean, honestly, I could not, you know, I could I could have a wall full of red string and I would not be able to connect all these things together. Although the credit sequence actually does show one character's wall of red string and you sort of understand his role, but it doesn't explain everything. And that seems important in a movie like this, that it not be sloppily plotted in that way.
3: I feel like I could explain it with
2: red string to you. I don't think it was that
3: complicated. Well, not, oh, I won't spoil really? anything, but oh, there, are, there, are, there, are least,
2: there are at least two characters, right? There are at least two different characters that are plotting secret things to fool yeah. other characters. And yeah. I don't understand how those two red string walls yeah. crisscross. Yeah. Right, Steve?
1: I'm going to so-called bullshit on you, Julia, because there is absolutely no way in retrospect to square the reveal of who set it up with the premise of who set it up, which is the brother. You cannot square those two things.
3: Well, I can I cannot uh support my argument here without spoiling the movie, so I will not do it for the purposes of this segment. I will strive to explain the plot maybe and maybe put it on Facebook with a spoiler warning and you guys can tear me to shreds or nay. But I also would argue that it does not matter one whit whether the plot makes <laughs> sense. It is just oh, pleasant. The
1: goalposts are dancing away from their <laughs> original. Spot.
3: No, I'm confident that I can do it, but I also do not think it matters. Because <laughs> The um pleasure of this movie is just being in the company of the great ensemble. I mean it's not character driven in that the movie is not uh, deeply existentially about the character evolution. I mean, there is sort of a pat and tidy one about competition and growing up and this, that and the other, but it's more extremely lightly to its credit, I think. Um, and mostly it's like right, Rachel McAdams is like a great. Comedic actress, mm-hmm. and it's fun yeah, to spend time in her company being electric and funny and not a sober reporter in bad pants as much as I loved her in Spotlight. And Jason Bateman is Jason Bateman, and you need to say no more, but he's in fine form. You get to spend time with Lamorne Morris, who is so funny on New Girl. Uh, Sharon Horgan is in the movie. It's unclear to me whether Sharon Horrigan can act or whether she's just like a delightful Irish woman that everybody wants to spend time with. Like her character in this movie seems to be basically exactly the same as her character in Catastrophe, but... Great. Sign me up.
2: Also, Billy Mm. Magnuson as the dumb guy you heard in the clip who doesn't understand that getting the keys to a car means getting the car itself. That line just made
3: me cackle. (laughs) It's so
2: stupid, but it's so funny. Can I shout out one other performance that's really surprising and great in this movie, which is Jesse Plemons, an actor that everyone knows, although you may not know he's named Jesse Plemons, who's this great kind of pug-faced guy who looks like sort of Matt Damon... Crossed with a pug. And uh, we all know him. I know him principally from Breaking Bad, where he plays Todd, one of the evil henchmen. Also uh, crucial in Friday Night Lights. Oh, I didn't watch. I haven't watched Friday Night Lights yet. But so Jesse Plemons is this very familiar actor who doesn't usually play comedy. And he plays a really, really funny character in this that I don't want to give away too much about, but who is this sober faced cop who lives next door to the to the main couple and uh, and who just, I think, kind of wins the movie with his very heavy and yet hilarious presence.
3: He's the the comedic timing in the scenes between him and the Bateman and McAdams characters. It's just a very well paced movie too. Like the I don't know if it's the editing yeah. or the direction or what exactly contributes to it, but the the rhythm of the jokes is, is tight and delightful, and the kind of the way that they play up the awkwardness of those interactions is giggle inducing.
2: I continue to maintain yeah. that it loses energy toward the end, but that is kind of nitpicking because it's it's tons of fun.
3: Kyle Chandler is also so great. Wonderful. Like yeah. such a wonderful actor, but he usually plays like Mr. Solid Good Dad. And here he's playing kind of like dissolute and mischievous. And it's fun to see him uh like look a little overheated and sweaty with his hair cut a little longer than usual. Like louche Kyle Chandler is like a fun <laughs> a fun vibe.
1: Totally agree. All right, go see it for louche Kyle Chandler alone, uh, and then tell us what you thought of the movie at Facebook.com slash culturefest. I was surprised to learn from Dan Engber's wonderfully swifty and polemic against the octopus that the octopus is the Internet's second most beloved animal after cats. Let me quote a little bit uh, from the piece. We're dazzled by its weird intelligence, tickled by its personality, and enchanted by its feline sense of mischief and tendency to muck things up. Rampant octophilia affects our (laughs) diets, too, with some now calling for octopus to be added to the list of foods people shouldn't eat. Octopi are too smart to be food, said Gwyneth Paltrow on Instagram. I had to stop eating them because I was so freaked out by it. Uh, We're joined by Dan Engber, uh, contributing editor to Slate Magazine. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. The thrust of your piece seems to be aimed at the idea that the octopus is somehow a super intelligent or far more intelligent creature than we've given it credit for. This has turned into a kind of fetish or projection. Talk a little bit about how smart uh, octopi are. Pi are
0: or aren't? um I'm I'm told it's octopuses. I think there's some either is correct. Uh, okay, it's true. <laughs> it
2: depends if you want to put on a Latinate ending to a Greek origin word or anyway. Oh, wait. If you wanted to be Greek about it, it would be octopodes.
0: Huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like that. I can I can do, I can say what I want about the octopus. Um, (laughs) continuing the trend.
2: While chewing on one?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that people like to say, I like to say, is that the, oh, the octopus is so intelligent. And part of that is because it's, you know, it's a mollusk. And if you compare it to other mollusks, it is pretty damn smart. Um. It's also, you know, it's an invertebrate. Speaking more broadly, we don't tend to think of invertebrates as being very smart. So the fact that it is so smart for one of those, I think, uh, maybe leads people to overestimate how smart it is on the uh, on on absolute measures of such things, if those exist or could exist. So um, the question is, how smart are they really? I mean, it's really hard to tell, but, you know, cert- I just came across a paper since I wrote the Slate piece that said, where they tested four octopuses on something called a reversal learning task. Three of them completely failed. The fourth succeeded, but didn't score as highly as a bumblebee or a cockroach. So uh, that's one data point.
3: Can I ask a baseline question here as the omnivorous, uh, immoral, auntie gwyneth of our show? Why does it matter how smart the animals are that we eat?
0: I think that's a, a great question. I mean, it should be how much um, an, an alternative theory that makes a lot more sense to me is evaluate how an animal suffers and the suffering. Right? That's like, do you need to be smart.
3: Why does your suffering matter more if you're smart? I guess because you're cognizant of it or you can think about it. I mean, I don't. I I am more. I basically eat everything. But if I were to uh, attempt to spend a ton of Intellectual energy on a more moral form of eating. I think I would be more concerned with suffering than intellect, and and then potentially with kind of effect on overall biodiversity and and population. Um, so the, the you know effects of fishing on ocean population seems to me like a more interesting moral question than how much is the thing I'm about to eat like me? That seems like a very egocentric way to contemplate imposing moral order on your
0: food choices. So that that question is very much tied into uh, the case like for or against the octopus. But I, you know, my interest in this topic was less to do with of the morality of how we treat octopuses, which feels like a, a sort of a separate question. I mean, I know I introduced that in the piece, but I'm sort of curious about just why we choose to like one animal versus another and say that the octopus is so great and share octopus-related media. That just, um, you know, again, these things are connected because we don't, want to eat the animals we like i mean i'm a mammal i i I avoid eating mammals i won't eat a pig and i won't eat a cat and i won't eat a dog but there are a lot of people who eat pigs but they don't eat cats and dogs so i you know i think there's something about you know this choosing and and ranking animals that is that has nothing to do with um you know and either of those very you know clearly thought through scales of suffering or intelligence or whatever
3: well okay we have an octopus adorer in our midst, an octophile. In fact, an octophile so associated with the octopus that her emoji code word in her own family is the octopus, right? Oh,
2: nice memory. That's true.
3: Dana, spill it. Why well, do you love the octopus? I, I, Why are you an octopus? I
2: actually met Dan in the elevator on the way up here and told him that I was going to try to cross swords with him as, <laughs> as genteelly as possible. I mean, first of all, Julia, I, I completely agree with you that it's it's utterly arbitrary to decide that because of the intelligence of an animal, you shouldn't eat it. But it so happens that the one animal I never do eat is, <laughs> is octopuses. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't think it necessarily has to do with intelligence or identification. I guess that would be what it is. I mean, it just... It just feels wrong. Luckily, I don't really like the way they taste either. They're kind of rubbery. But, I mean, if, if you think about bushmeat, for example, right, like eating gorillas or, or, or actual primates, right? And when you sort of see some awful image being passed around on the Internet of a gorilla hand being grilled by, you know, poachers to eat what or something. What internet are you hanging out on? Have you never seen On the all- dark web. <laughs> <laughs> GorillaHand.com. I have not. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> I mean that that just turns our stomachs, right? Or eating an elephant? Well, that's different because they're also endangered, as are gorillas, I guess. And as you point out in your piece, Dan, octopuses are the opposite of endangered. They're some of the weeds of the ocean, and they flourish in overfished oceans. So there's plenty of them to go around. So that's not the problem. Um, I also want to claim a little bit of hipster cred on octopus love because I loved them <laughs> before there was ever an internet and uh, and have read books about them and watched documentaries about them. And, I mean, I just think they're beautiful, fascinating, incredible animals. And so whether or not they have as many neurons as they're in their brain as a, a pig and the various other points that you make in your octopus-hating screed, Dan, <laughs> they, to me, just seem like one of God's great creations on Earth. I mean, when you see... Uh, The camouflage abilities they have and the way that they can change not just the color but the texture of their skin to look like some sort of rough rock that they're hiding in. I mean they just – it's really clear that they have some sort of consciousness that operates in a very – and and physiology that operates in an incredibly different way than ours that's so – Fascinating and hard to wrap your mind around. I think that there's a lot of good reasons that people are fascinated and and adore octopuses because they are evidence of a completely different mode of being that isn't mammalian or isn't primate based and yet has all these capabilities that we can wonder at. So I don't know. I guess that delight and wonder seems to me like enough reason not to eat them. I also have one kind of origin story of not wanting to eat them, which is that I just remember going out with my mother one time for a meal at some tapas place. This was a long time ago, also before the internet existed. And the special of the day being baby octopus and us getting it, and that it was just horrifying how it came out. It wasn't prepared or chopped up in any way it was just like a whole grilled baby <laughs> sitting on the table and it was so sad that not only could i not eat it i had to cover it with a napkin and not even look <laughs> at it for the entire meal anyway so I, I guess this is just you know me being one of the suckers dan that you're you're Swift-ianly trashing in your piece but no octopus eating for me i'm with Gwyneth.
0: H- how are you on calamari uh
2: that would well it tastes kind of the same too so yeah i, I would skip that as well no well, cuttlefish
0: okay but it because it tastes the same?
2: Well, no. But- I guess
0: I'm, what I'm really asking is how do you feel about squid and, and cuttlefish? Oh, well, and they have it. the
2: same abilities. I mean, I've seen in one of the many octopus documentaries I've consumed, there was an incredible <laughs> moment when some sort of cuttlefish, like a sort of transparent squid-like thing, was placed on a checkerboard and it camouflaged itself in black and white squares. I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty amazing. I'm not going to eat that guy. <laughs> one thing
3: that's striking about your uh, pan there, Dana, is that You're sort of toggling back and forth between finding kindredness in the octopus and that there seems to be some kind of like higher order analysis of the situation it's in compared to uh, its fellow uh, seagoing creatures. And then a constant return to the sense of like, what is this? Like, what is that? That's so different than what we can do. That's so alien. That's so strange. And there's like a joint admiration for uh, its cognition and its oddity that... I feel like is part of what's underlying the appeal here. Well there's
2: a really good book that we were discussing in the elevator too, or I thought it was really good, called called Other Minds by what's the guy's name? Peter Godfrey Smith, I believe, is the author. And he's a philosopher of science and sort of like a theory of mind guy and also a scuba diving aficionado. And so he writes about not just octopuses, but sort of about the origin of consciousness and about some of the oldest uh, smart creatures there are, which are the invertebrates. And uh, and really part of the point that he makes is that this is the paradox of exactly what you pointed out, that, you know, the, the fascination with minds that are other than ours is precisely that we can't map our intelligence onto theirs that they have some sort of sensory capabilities like being able to change the color and texture of your skin that isn't something we can identify with and therefore you know it becomes a source of fascination so yeah i think it's probably more the latter to me it's more the sense of the alien Beauty and the alien intelligence of this creature rather than saying, oh, I can't eat them because they're just like us, which I guess would be the bushmeat argument.
3: One thing that the reading up on the octopus and the d- octopus uh, octopus mind debate has made me think about is whether you think about animal issues in terms of the capabilities of the individual species or whether you think about them in terms of the treatment of the mass population and the the existence of the mass population. There was a story last year that came out um, that talked about the human impact on animal populations, not in terms of the extinction of individual species, but in terms of mass population. I forget the exact figure, but it was something like uh, the mammal population of the African plains of the Great Migration uh, is down like 70% over the last 30 years or something. I, I'm not stipulating that's the exact exact population that was being described. But basically, there was a report that the total number of animals was 70% lower than it was 30 years ago in some region where we typically think about the extinction of particular species. And I was like, what? What the fuck? That is a horrifying number. Like the notion that any individual particular whatever, bird, I mean, I love birds, but like bird or rhino or fish type or th- the fact that the kind of conservation industry is focused on biodiversity as the argument rather than just sheer health, pop- like population health is so interesting to me because I find, eh, you lose a few, you gain a few, mutation, I don't know. Like, I do not I do not find it, uh, the extinction argument to be the powerful one, but the notion that that human decisions around Kind of industry, population, civilization have have cost pop- populations in mass so much to me is a more powerful argument. And and the octopus thing here, the, the kind of two different frameworks, feels like it comes back to that. Are you thinking about the capabilities of the individual animal type, or are you looking at total populations as you're making various moral calculations? And that feels like a split in the way we think about animal ethics.
0: Well, when I'm. When I'm eating something I'm having a very uh feels like I'm having a very personal interaction with the thing I'm eating. I'm looking at this animal and, and saying, "Am I going to tear you apart with my teeth so it becomes so I, I i have a lot of trouble having any of those you know abstracted levels of reasoning about um dietary restrictions, but I think it comes back to what Dana was saying about the alien intelligence with the octopus you know and again this is what i was sort of interested in in the piece and continue to be interested in is, is 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 what happens when you watch the video of the octopus and and uh stare into its uh you know its horizontal rectangle pupils what what conclusions does one draw what feelings does it elicit and i think that phrase alien intelligence sort of captures uh what you know you could call a paradox but i think it's uh I think maybe what it comes down to is, I don't know if that paradox is really something to worship, where, whereas I think that the cult of the octopus does worship the, the paradox. And the paradox being just that, you know, intelligence is something we ass- that is, you know, uh humanish, you know, in, in most measures. And then alien is something that's not. And so what's fascinating is the way the octopus appears to be, you know, graspable its mind is graspable in a way that you know an ants wouldn't be and yet it's totally not and 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 the the duality that i get in the piece is you know people often talk about the octopus as being like a a, the einstein of the ocean but they also love to talk about its houdini like escapes and i think it's really it's it's just not the einstein of the ocean it's not that smart it doesn't really use tools the way that even fish do but it does have this ability to camouflage itself. it does you know sneak out of aquariums, supposedly um, you know there are lots of stories of that so um and and even in the Godfrey Smith book i mean he's he, he keeps talking about how you know the octopus may be um, the, the the my read of it is the octopus may be so smart in this alien way that we'll never understand it and so there's i mean it kind of feels like having it both ways, and I think that's maybe for me what what led me to think, we've invented this whole idea of the alien intelligence because it appeals to us, but it, it yet it's just yet another level of the octopus getting away from us. And we just, it's like, <laughs> it's not an alien intelligence. It's just a freaking octopus.
3: That's its camouflage. It's camouflaging itself as an animal so intelligent that we shouldn't eat it.
0: But, But let me just add one more thing I discovered in going back to sort of the the high point of the octopus evil octopus metaphor that back then the alien intelligence everyone loved. Was the raccoon, and there were <laughs> stories throughout the newspaper, like New York, multiple New York Times stories from the first decade of the 20th century about Billy the raccoon's amazing escape from the Bronx Zoo and the, you know, the mischief and, and unknowable intellect of the raccoon. And shouldn't we be studying them because they're smart in a way that no other animal is? So the fact that we could have, you know, the raccoon fill this role and then just completely vanish now it's just it's just a, you know another thing raiding your garbage can while the octopus went on the opposite track. Strikes me as worth considering.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you could graph it. There'd be some year where they were exactly even and then they started to cross. It's probably right around when Rocky Raccoon came out. <laughs> Basically, the, the Beatles wrote
3: that song and we were like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's let that be the last word. Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show to talk about octopuses.
0: Uh, thank you for having me on to talk about octopodes.
1: And the article is Against the Octopus. It's on Slate.com, of course, by Dan Engber. Um, check it out. And I, this is bound to have a, a variety of uh, vituperative and opposing opinions attached to it. So come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest and post them there. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day no na 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 na
2: Record scratch. Uh, okay. So be- since we spent part of our show this week trashing my <laughs> one of my favorite animals in the world, I'm going to do two octopodes-related endorsements. One of them is the book that we mentioned in our conversation with Dan Engber. It's called Other Minds, the Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. This is the one that's by a scuba diving philosopher of mind who is, I believe, Australian. At least he teaches in Sydney, Australia. And uh, and it's just a beautifully written book that has probably exactly the tone that turned Dan Anger off the op- octopus, i.e., you know, very um, uh, lyrical and sort of romantic lyrical wonder. And it has an octopus on the cover, but it's not only about the octopus at all. It really is about um, sort of invertebrates and the origin of consciousness. And uh, it's, it's just lovely, and uh, I recommend it highly.
3: Aren't we all scuba diving philosophers of mine <laughs> when you really think about it? <laughs>
2: That's actually my alternate career. Remember when we talked about the job you wish you'd had? I wish I'd been a scuba diving philosopher of mine. <laughs> and in fact, scuba diving is one of the things I want to do in my life. I've never done it, and it oh, seems God. so incredible. Never. Really? You would never do it?
3: Claustrophobia, fear.
2: I'm sure there's a lot of fear to get over in the training, but the idea of just being down there among the sea creatures and the coral reefs. Steve, have you scuba dived? Never. Would you? Never. Really? Would you be more likely to jump out of a plane or scuba dive? Oh, yeah, yeah. Skydiving versus scuba diving. I wouldn't, I would, you'd have to push me. I would never, ever jump out of a plane.
3: Yeah, I think if forced to
2: choose between the two, scuba. Steve?
1: Scuba. Yeah. Scuba. You, I mean, first of all, you'd have to get me on the plane first, which is nearly impossible <laughs> to begin with. Whereas getting me on a boat, I kind of love boats. So scuba's is going to win that one.
2: Yeah. One day before I die, I will scuba dive on a coral reef or before the coral reef dies, I hope. And my <laughs> second octopus related endorsement is uh, the Blue Planet episode that I think Daniel also mentions this in, in his piece. Blue Planet 2, the new series with David Attenborough, the wonderful uh, nature host taking us through the oceans, has a whole episode about octopuses. It's episode five of Blue Planet 2. Unfortunately, at the moment, Blue Planet 2 is only available here, I believe, on BBC America. But if you don't have that channel, I'm sure that it will soon be coming to some sort of streaming provider near you.
3: I really wish someone would make the kid-friendly edit of Blue Planet and Planet Earth. Like, I tried to, even at the Natural History Museum this weekend to take one of my sons to see the flight video. There's almost like a you know, one of those ones where they put the cameras on the, they put like a GoPro on an eagle or whatever the hell they do. And it's like, there's too much uh, predator drama. It's like always some fucking crocodile sneaking up on some wildebeest. And, you know, we like went into the theater and clocked like a peregrine falcon on the hunt for about 12 seconds. And then my son was like, nope, let's go back to the senses exhibit. Forget it. Um, Alicia in that one clip
2: where the, uh, the, what is it that escapes from the the snakes? That... No, I can't.
3: They would be terrified.
2: They can't handle it.
3: The, the seagoing iguana.
2: But when he escapes, they would love it. It's so exciting.
3: No, way too terrifying. They're, they're timid souls. They keep telling me they just turned five. And uh, last year, I recounted the plot of Moana to them, which they were interested in, but they felt not ready to see Moana yet. And I looked up on a website like, how old do you have to be to see Moana? and uh Six was like the conclusion of the random website I Googled. And so they're very, they have very much in mind. Like when we are six, we will be old enough to see Moana, but they're very, there's a lot of self-censorship happening. At least they know their minds.
1: Julia, what do you have?
3: I would like to recommend a music video and the song that the music video, uh, enacts portrays. I don't know what the, what the verb is there. Um, the song is make me feel by Janelle Monae. It's a great song. It's, it's, Basically, a Prince song, but now and new, and Janelle Monet. It's sort of a a tight, plinky little sexed up ode. Um, And the music itself is fantastic. But the music video, too, is just like a classic color collage, great dancing. What kind of crazy fucking costume is she going to wear next? Like, it's not reinventing the music video in any kind of way. It's just a really good music video. It has also come in for some attention because uh, Janelle Monáe accompanied Tessa Thompson on the red carpet at the Annihilation premiere. And then Tessa Thompson stars is basically like a love interest in this video. It's sort of a... Uh, bisexual lust ode, um, and Tessa Thompson is one of the lust objects. Um, So there's a lot of, uh, it's it's fun to see non-heteronormative lust just portrayed in a very straightforward and classic music video way.
2: If they're a real life couple, the internet will achieve nuclear fusion
3: there is a m- much speculation and many there's some very detailed posts where you can scrutinize the history of their uh joint appearances if if that is a rabbit hole you care to fall down there are definitely people who will try to convince you with many many gifts and paparazzi posts that they are a couple and have been one for quite some time Truthers. yes uh so anyway, if it, if you're the sort of person who enjoys thinking about the idea that Janelle Monet and Tessa Thompson might be one of the world's most attractive and cool couples, that's available to you as a as a think about option. Um, but even if you just want to enjoy a good music and a good music video, this video has got it all.
1: I, you know, Jodi put this show onto her very early on in her career. And she has she has delivered as an actress, performer, music video, songwriter Singer, uh, she's just the omni threat that Jody told us she was going to be. All right, in a slightly different vein, I'm going to recommend a song that, as far as I know, doesn't have a music video. But okay, bear with me on this. All right, I'm a huge fan of uh, Tracy Thorne, the lead singer from Everything But the Girl. To my mind, she's the thinking person's Natalie Merchant. I think Tracy Thorne is a grossly underrated musical artist. Um, and I th- think people may have a fixed idea of who or what she is from Everything But The Girl, which I think is a terrific band. But um, she's had a great, I mean, a really accomplished solo career, sort of parallel to and then after Everything But The Girl, uh, but the Girl broke up. She's got a new record out right now. It is called Record. And just start with that first track, Queen. It's so, it I mean, I know that middle-aged longing is unseemly and probably should stay Very deep in the closet. Nonetheless, for those of us who are susceptible to it, uh, both personally and in our tastes, I mean that that song is a four minute seventeen second masterpiece. I think about a certain kind of state of mind one might be in as a a middle aged person. But but I, I know that there isn't a single person running to listen to this based on the descriptions that I've given so far. Give it a chance. I think it's a beautifully produced album. Uh, it's, it's, It's lyrically strong. The craft that went into the songwriting for someone this late into a pop career I think is remarkable. It's wonderful. And for those of you still inclined to not take Tracy Thorne seriously, don't believe me. I know you won't. But there's a great old essay that came out in the London Review of Books three, four years ago, we'll link to it. It's called I Was There, Was I? by Lavinia Greenslaw. And it's a review essay about uh, Tracy Thorne's memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen. And it's just a wonderful essay about what this person meant um, to English audiences. I think that probably has a different resonance that that band and that woman has in England uh, and in the English music scene. Um, God, the way she came as a very young, precocious performer out of the punk movement um, uh, and then moved towards dance music and um, electronica. Uh, it's just, it's a very, very smart essay about, I think, a underrated uh, musician. But at least check out, just do me one favor, at least just check, check out the first track on record, the new Tracy Thorne record, Tell Me, i'm wrong
3: can i just say as a testament to the fact that sometimes we check out your musical endorsements, steve you're not just howling into the void that since you endorsed red garland's piano a couple weeks ago it has been my like entire soundtrack of my life like anytime i'm not listening to summer strut and my kids are a bed and i am like either cleaning up the house or doing a little bit of work i've just been playing red garland albums on my sonos here, oh, here! I've been your...
2: listening to Quincy Jones's arrangement of Dinah Washington, so there's another recent one that made a hit.
3: Yeah, so you're you're uh, you're an influencer, Steve. You can't avoid it.
1: Oh man, I I, I love it when you guys patronize me. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I'm psyched that you I psyched that you dig it. So do me one last favor and just listen to Queen by Tracy Thorne and then then give me an honest appraisal. Um, and YouTube. Festers at uh, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Thank you, Dana. We
3: cannot call them Festers. I don't know. We don't have like a stand name yet. Maybe that's a testament <laughs> to our standum. But we definitely can't call them Festers. <laughs> well, you know,
1: we I did that the first few weeks of the show, way back when. I think it was 10 years ago. I'd have to check. But... It, I started calling them Festers, and someone over email gave me so much shit. Like only Steven Metcalf would refer to his fans as Festers, his would-be fans as Festers, and so I stopped. But I've recently thought that that would have been kind of cute and fun. It would have been a thing.
3: That's there's so many missed opportunities in our decade of podcasting. We don't have a cute, a cute stand name.
1: All right, we don't. All right. Well, on that up note, thank you, Julia.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Steve thanks Dana thanks Stephen
1: you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page slate.com slash culture you can email us always at culturefest culturefest.slate.com drop us a note at our Facebook page facebook.com slash culture our Twitter feed is at slate cult our producer is Benjamin Frisch our production assistant is Daniel Schrader the chief content officer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, of course uh, for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner thank you so much for joining us we'll see you soon besters.